Chapter 75 Tom had never seen such joy, and it was a terrible thing to behold. Even the German troops were taken aback. Crowds of men, women, and children lined the streets, screaming themselves hoarse. Shimmering clouds of flower petals rained down on the armed columns like unicolored butterflies. He was watching the parade from the balcony of the British Embassy with Sir Paleret. The ambassador was in silent tears. Tom was not far behind. The strangest thing, murmured Sir Paleret, is that they genuinely believe that they are being liberated. No Jews, said Tom, looking for Yamalkis in the crowd. No, but they haven't left. They think that... Oh, I don't know what they think. Where in Europe would they go? Can't go east, can't go west. Tom sighed. I don't know why they're so happy. Race. Why do they care about race? It's what failures cling to, so they don't have to do anything to be special. This is more than the work of failures, said Tom with a shudder. This is something far darker, deeper, older. Well, we handed it to them, didn't we? asked Sir Paleret sadly. He could not tear his eyes away from the procession. How? We told them that a country was defined by culture, by race, by history, by language. He almost seemed to spit out the last word. What do you think a country is defined by? The good, said Sir Paleret softly. The word was almost lost among the clatter of boots and the clashing of arms, but it hit Tom solidly in the solar plexus. The good. If we wouldn't allow it in our own houses, our own country, said Sir Paleret, we shouldn't allow it in the world. Where we can, without significant risk, oppose it in the world, we must. Morality does not end where the sea begins, or mountains rise, or tongues change. But that was the principle of the empire, and we no longer love the empire, and I fear that we are casting out the good with the bad. Someone said that everything was relative and all force was equal, and we believed it, because being good is hard when you have to define it. And we beat a path back from our highest peaks and most noble virtues, and left the doors wide open to the jackals. We called and called, and they have come. He gestured at the endless line of soldiers. Here they are. Tom knew that he should leave Vienna. He knew because he was pressing his luck. He had lived through the triumph of Nazism, through several street riots, uncertain weather, and technical malfunctions on his airplane. But he had never seen the Germans invade. He had briefly stayed in the Rhineland two years ago, but then the Germans did not really want to take it over, not for political reasons. They just wanted to fortify it against the French. Tom knew that there were many people in Vienna who would scarcely benefit from the coming of the Nazis. The Nazis were brutal, stupid, and certain. They were cunning, of course, as all predators are. A spider does not show itself until the fly is enmeshed. A tiger slinks through the reeds very, very slowly. Patience and sudden striking is common throughout the whole animal and insect kingdoms. 
and Tom found it hard to credibly assign intelligence to Hitler and his pack of gutter elite. Intelligence has something to do with the world. The ability to manipulate others is not a facet of intelligence. It is just cunning, an adroitness for deception, a talent for fiction. Hitler has a capacity for language. It is his talent. But what he says is just emotionally forceful. It has no content. It is a talent, a mimicry, not intelligence. Cunning. So Tom had some idea what might happen to intelligent people under Nazism. By taking Germany, the Nazis had seized an educated country and were currently in the process of de-educating it. University enrollment was plummeting. No one could do any independent, intelligent work. All they could do was mouth vicious, empty slogans. Intelligent people are not drawn to that kind of education, and unintelligent people are rarely drawn to education of any kind. People more full of cunning than brains cannot stand opposition. Tom knew this from knowing Reginald. Their view of themselves is so false that anyone coming near them who speaks the truth or even asks pointed questions becomes an enemy. Not a team player. In British terms, an eccentric. In Nazi terms, dead. So Tom could not tear himself away. He wanted to see what? See what? The intellectuals had been silent. They had scorned the alarm of certain sections of the population. They scorned people like Churchill because Churchill did not even have a university education. They mocked those who became alarmed at the prospect of the Nazi heel blotting out the sky. And not a few intellectuals were Nazis themselves. But what they worshipped were just the shadows of evil. Just bad ideas. He wanted to see them punished. He wanted to see their faces when the black hearts casting those endless shadows came to call. After a short dinner, Tom took to the streets. He joined the crowds, but was without fear. He was surprised at the number of women in the throng, but then there was no chance of mob violence. No one could imagine, unlike in England, France, or pre-Nazi Germany, that the Nazi soldiers would hesitate to fire on civilians. And this was a celebratory crowd. It was a new phenomenon for Tom, who had some experience in mobs. People screamed and laughed and hugged and threw each other's children far into the air. It took some time for Tom to get used to the sight of children constantly dropping from the sky like little screaming bombs. Bottles were passed around. A butcher had set up a barbecue in front of his shop and was handing out chunks of sizzling sausage. A baker had trays of sweets. Random songs chased each other through the crowd, none seeming to last for more than a moment. Chants also rose and fell, but one took on with more regularity. Ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. As he was jostled and jammed against the breathy, exultant crowd, Tom tried to understand their faces. He had never been frightened by joy before. Joy is a very, very rare emotion to see, more rare than grief. But this joy was like the joy of children told that school is gone forever, or of a criminal released on a technicality. 
It was the joy of vengeance. But not vengeance against anything in particular. Vengeance against reality. Against cause and effect, perhaps. Sweet reason. Or, Tom thought, remembering a little girl who was always messing up the little trench wars of his childhood. It's like a snotty little girl who pinches you, then runs and hides behind her bullying older brother making faces. It was a new time for a certain kind of person, a certain kind of soul. Of course, everyone knew the story of Hitler's youth, how he lived in shelters for the homeless and never found his place in society, how he never got into art school. And how much does the world have to change for such a petty misfit to end up running it, and how many of his fellow misfits would roar with joy? Tom was startled to feel the sexual energy of the crowd. It mostly came from the women, and it came as a shock. In all his prior mobs, the only sexual aspect had been the pinch and grope of the odd pervert who had merged with the crowd for obviously apolitical purposes. But here, before a sign carrying the frozen fury of the Fuhrer's face, women would shriek and throw themselves forward. Some fainted, most screamed, clutching themselves. Tom thought initially that it might be the tight repression of the spinster breaking loose, but he saw young, lovely girls gripped by the same ecstasy, and women with infants or children. No women obviously passed menopause, but still. If she was capable of ovulation, it seemed, she wanted to bear the Fuhrer's child. It was all very stone age. They also threw themselves at the soldiers, and a thought kept nagging at Tom as he saw yet another laughing soldier go down under a charging phalanx of women. Well, it is very primitive, he thought, but it also makes sense. In a time of peace, women gravitate towards professionals, intellectuals, businessmen. In a time of war, they gravitate towards soldiers, towards warriors towards Tom stopped as the thought struck him. Could it be? He thought for a moment before being swept forward to another random destination. He remembered Wendy's odd comments and looks over the past few years. He recalled Klaus's mother, oh, what was her name, coming to him the night before he left for a very odd conversation. He hadn't thought much of Wendy's obvious attraction, only that she was probably flirting with him to get Reginald's goat. But perhaps not. Perhaps not. Tom couldn't think in the crowd. He ducked into a doorway, but the bodies kept crushing against him. Someone was screaming that the Fuhrer had entered Vienna with the troops and was going to speak from the city square. The call went up and the crowd surged against him, crushing him up against a large glass door. Cursing, he tried to turn but couldn't. His cheek was being mashed against the glass. His breath was being pressed out of him. A woman beside him turned and screamed for the crowds to turn and go back. The sounds of people being crushed against the building mixed in with the mad plunge of the mob, desperate for a sight of Hitler. Tom found it astounding that he wasn't able to take a breath. Collectivism in action, he thought, and almost laughed at the subsequent thought. I thought many things, but I never thought that a glass door would get me. Just as he felt consciousness slipping away, he heard a terrific tearing crash and fell forward. The glass door had given way. Fortunately, it had been made of some form of safety glass and so didn't kill him. 
A few people seemed to burst into the interior of the building with him. Tom forced his deadened limbs to move and scrambled away from the doorway in a lurching, crab-like manner, fearful of being trampled by more people fleeing the mob. But in another of the inexplicable movements of mass phenomenon, the crowd moved back from the doorway. The few people who had come through the door leapt up, brushed the glass from their coats, and ran back into the street. Tom was in the front hallway of a newspaper office. He sat in a chair behind a reception desk, brushing his hands delicately through his hair, trying to remove the glass without also removing his fingernails. He tried to think about the odd instincts of the women with children who had been attracted to him and what that might mean about feminine instincts and the future. But his thoughts kept returning to Jacqueline, who he was sure would have been just as attracted to him in peacetime. And the power of the original connection about women and warriors had been lost. He got up. Evening was falling, and the street outside, while far from deserted, looked passable with persistence and patience. He heard a gunshot, which was not terribly new, but paused as he was getting out of the chair because he could not locate it. Or rather, he thought he could locate it, but... Tom listened, feeling the natural irritation of trying to hear a specific sound in the midst of a general melee. He thought he heard a groan coming from within the building. Oh, damn my ears, he thought. I already know that they're bad chaps. But he could not leave. It had always been both his curse and his blessing. He walked past the reception area and through a door to a larger open area with a sea of desks and typewriters. A banner hung from the ceiling pipes exhorting truth, accuracy, honesty. There was another shot. A scream, a barked command, a groan. It was coming from a closed office at the far end of the hall. Tom walked soundlessly over. He had come with his revolver, of course. After England, he had never entered a crowd without a gun. He heard in German a bubbling voice full of agony. But I have always supported our national socialist brothers, cried the voice. Heil Hitler! Another shot. Another groan. Do not speak his name again, barked a voice. You are a mass of extremities. But if you'd if you'd read... <sighs> the voice broke down into sobs. Another voice. We know that there is gold on the premises. We have found the safe. A third voice. Hiding it behind a picture of all the things. It was... I tell you, it was, it was here when I moved in. It's been a joke. It's, it's empty. I'm, I'm sure of it. Just tell us how to open it, said the first voice. As an editor-in-chief, I'm sure you need your remaining fingers. Oh, please, for all that is holy, if I, if I could open it, I would... They continued to exhort the man. There was another shot. Tom fingered his revolver. He retreated behind a desk, hiding under it. The electrical cables were very dusty. He tried to think. I would have the element of surprise. There are at least three of them. At least one has his gun out. If there are more, I am dead. If not, it's still risky. And I wouldn't want to be wounded, not among that lot. And even if I shoot them all and kill them. How is that man going to get any help? It's madness out there. The streets are in chaos. He might bleed to death anyway. And 
what if he is a loyal Nazi? He might denounce me anyway, or a dissident. He might denounce me to get passage out of Austria. But something new and unexpected enter into his mental chatter like a panther sidling into a children's party. Tom had always tried to be a moral man, but he had no idea that he was capable of this kind of morality. Oh, for heaven's sake, Austria is lost. England is free and yours to defend. And Sir Polaret says that this man supported the Nazis. I might as well try to separate snapping jackals. Tom was rather shocked at this new thought. He felt something in himself harden. He had the image of a prison warden holding back his guards from a contained riot. It would be a stupid and futile way to die, he thought. He waited for five minutes, just in case he decided to reverse himself. But he felt no impulse. After another shot, he crept out of the building. That night, in his hotel, Tom was unable to sleep. He could hear roving gangs of stormtroopers running through the streets, dragging men and women from their houses. The cries of children were halted far too quickly. Women cried out for salvation from gang rape. Tom felt as if he were in hell. This was new. This kind of exposure was new. Listening to torture and murder was new. He desperately wanted to run and run, run to his airplane and fly to cleaner lands. But evil and trigger-happy gangs roamed the streets. Safety Relative safety could only come from sunrise. But when the sun came, he would fly west. He would fly west to his blessed island. He would fly and land and kiss the soil still free from such horrors. Chapter 76 it was just a matter of time, thought Martin. The thought jolted him awake. He lay in the darkness in his own bed. A little puddle of sweat had gathered in the depression where his lower ribs met, above his belly. His heart thumped in the dark like a distant jungle drum. He could not remember the dream which had provoked his thought, but blessed it silently. A door had slammed shut somewhere in his mind, and he had jumped into waking. Martin smiled in the dark, letting the thoughts come rushing over him. All of God's punishments have been short. Forty days of rain, Sodom and Gomorrah, instantaneous, the casting out from Eden. Or, if long, they have escalated, like his punishments of the Pharaoh. Sequential, incremental, nothing comes and stays without God's permission. My wife has been mounting crucifixes without punishment. A thought struck him, and he frowned. The Republic lasted for fourteen years. Ah, but it was getting incrementally worse the whole time, more and more ineffective. So the Nazis were a just punishment. More thoughts cascaded into him. We have been deemed too vain for free will. God has appointed the Fuhrer to keep us on a strict path. We are being compelled to be good. That the failure of the Republic was ample evidence that we are not good enough for freedom. He spent the next hour or so thinking in rapid, almost 
incoherent joy. It was such a relief. It could not be expressed in words. Tearfully, Martin thanked God for giving him the dream, the knowledge, the certainty, the faith once more to act. He knew that he would sleep no more that night. He got up, rubbing his eyes, which remained obstinately dry and tired, despite the exultation in his soul, then threw a dressing gown over his thin frame and went downstairs. He drank a long draught of milk, then lit a candle and sat down in his little cubbyhole where his desk was. He tried working on his sermon for the following Sunday, but he couldn't concentrate. Ideas came out of him like water from a broken jug, and he had to keep closing his eyes. It was very frustrating. He put his head down for a moment. Another door slammed, and Martin was jolted awake once more. It was early, early dawn. Hands seized his dressing gown and hauled him up from his tiny desk. Martin turned around and saw Klaus standing before him, his face pale. "'Why didn't you stop it?' screamed Klaus, shaking his father's shoulders. Martin felt instant rage and tore his son's hands from him. "'You lay a hand on your father!' he cried, raising his hand. Both Klaus's hands came up swiftly, gripped in fists, and hung in the air in front of his father's stubbled cheeks. Martin paused, frowning, as if trying to understand this new development. "'Did you say anything?' asked Klaus, his voice soft. Martin could see that his son was close to tears, but felt none of the power that he normally did when his children started to break. His frown deepened. About what? From the corner of his eye, Martin could see a few figures gathering on the stairs beside the kitchen. His children were used to raised voices, of course, but... But only one raised voice, thought Martin. What's happening? asked his youngest daughter. "'Check mother's room,' said Klaus, not moving his blazing eyes from his father's face. "'Why?' whined the girl. "'Why isn't she up? She's always up.' "'Go!' cried Klaus. He looked away from Martin for a moment, propelling the child with the ferocity of his gaze. After a moment she wailed. "'She's gone!' Martin's voice cracked. "'Where?' "'You didn't wake!' demanded Klaus. They take her from the very room you sleep in and you don't wake? I can't believe it. His voice thickened with passion. When they come, they are never quiet. I heard a door slam, thought Martin, and then I thought that the Nazis were good. I thought I was dreaming. Klaus grabbed the lapels of his father's dressing gown. Why? Why did you let it happen? "'You lie around here, moaning about your conscience, "'and then you let them take our mother!' Klaus's face was cruelly distorted. Martin's vision blackened around the edges. "'When is she coming back?' demanded the child. Martin picked up Klaus and hurled him away. Klaus's hands were still gripping his father's lapel, and so they both pitched over onto the floor. Klaus punched his father full in the face. He was screaming incoherently. The children on the landing were frozen. They had awoken to a world without reason. Martin moaned. One of his teeth broke under his son's fist, tearing a hole almost all the way through his cheek. 
His arms reached up, groping for Klaus's face, trying to find some soft cavity to bury his nails in. But another blow came from his son, and he felt his neck twist painfully. A blinding headache shot up from his spine, filling his cranium. You thrash us our whole lives, screamed Klaus, and then just hand her over to them. Them is you, screamed Martin, not knowing why he said it. Them is you, and you let her put those fucking crucifixes up. Of the six children on the stairs, four put their hands to their mouths. They vaguely knew the word. It seemed to galvanize Martin. He threw his son aside. Klaus rolled to one side. Some part of his rage was spent. He burst into tears. We'll never get her back, (laughs) stupid bitch. Martin could not understand. The world would not come into shape. He swayed to his feet, looking up at the children on the landing. The eyes of the youngest were wide. He saw more complicated emotions on the faces of the elder children. The youngest, who worshipped Klaus, burst into tears. "'Don't say that word!' she screamed, hugging herself and jumping up and down. "'I'm sorry,' cried Klaus, sitting squat-legged on the floor, his head in his hands. "'I'm sorry!' Martin turned and hauled Klaus to his feet. Klaus's hands came up in a protective gesture. "'What has happened?' demanded Martin. "'Drop your hands!' Klaus sobbed. It was the terror of more than two years. He would be no use. "'Can you drive?' Klaus would not meet his eyes. "'Can you drive?' demanded Martin, striking Klaus across the face with the back of his hand. "'Just to get his attention.' The girl on the landing screamed. Martin struck his son again. When Klaus's face returned to the upright, his eyes were cold. Martin thought he saw an answering nod. All right, then let's go and see your Count Orski. They drove in silence. The air in the automobile was inflated with emotion. Martin kept tonguing the tear in his cheek and leaning out the window to spit what felt like buckets of blood. Count Orski was up, which was unusual, for he was not an early riser. He did not seem surprised to see them. What faces? He smiled, leading them into the living room. I hope my car is all right. You have my wife, said Martin. What, here? replied the Count, looking around comically. (laughs) "'Sorry, but it seems like such a line from a melodrama.' "'She was taken from our house last night,' said Klaus, emptily, not looking at either of them. "'How do you know?' "'I heard it.' Count Orski smiled. "'All right, keep your sources for now. "'The Reich is nothing if not just. Where was she taken?' "'To town. So she is in the jail there, and it's—' Quite the opposite direction, so why are you here? I'm not a policeman. Martin swallowed. She was taken because because she hung crucifixes in the hospital. That does sound dire, but I don't see how I can help you. Unless you would like a drink. He eyed Martin's torn cheek. Or some disinfectant. Please step back from bleeding on my carpet. We were hoping you would uh, help, said Klaus. Really? That is almost insulting, but... I know how boys are with their mothers, so it's all right. But the law is the law. I can't be overturning it. How fair would that be? 
"'You should have come at night,' said Count Orsky, walking over to the bar. "'I hate to drink in the morning.' "'That's—' Martin leapt to his feet. "'My son is a loyal Nazi, an honest Nazi!' "'Yes, and I think we have you to thank for that, father. "'And as a loyal Nazi, he should know that we can't play favorites. "'The will of the Fuhrer is all. Isn't that right, Klaus? "'I mean, how could she have been taken if the world spirit had not—' "'Shut up!' screamed Klaus. "'He half rose from his sofa, then sank back, his eyes averted. "'I am sorry. Was she warned?' "'Neither man replied. "'Well—' said the Count. If she hadn't been warned... Then he tapped his forehead impatiently. But you are a priest, Father. She would not have been unaware of our religious injunctions. No. I'm afraid there is no way out. The... sentence? Martin could not seem to raise his eyes. Orsky knelt down and lifted the old priest's chin. The Count's eyes were wide, as if to absorb and record every facet of the old man's expression. Beheading, he murmured softly. Decapitation. Then he glanced at his watch and pursed his lips. He turned his gaze to Martin's face, his eyes softening with strange sorrow and deeply morbid curiosity. Chapter 77 Despite Gunther's exhortations, Tom refused to go back to Europe. They were sitting in Gunther's rather bare London flat. Tom was on his way to meet his family for dinner. But everything comes down to Czechoslovakia, Tom, cried Gunther, pacing back and forth. If you're going to back out now, there was no point going at all. Nothing I write gets published. All right, all right, we didn't expect that it would. But you know, they'll make for great memoirs after the war. I don't think there's any hope. For Czechoslovakia. Gunther shook his head. Well, of course not. We're not counting on Chamberlain changing his mind. So why? Let Churchill answer that. He's coming by. Oh. You seem... What is in your heart? Gunther smiled. I've always prided myself on my ability to read your heart, but you're a closed book today. Tell me about my mother. The words were out before Tom could consider them. Gunther frowned. What would you like to know? That's an excellent question. What every boy wants to know about his mother, I suppose. Ah, the truth. Yes, and don't say about what. If I knew about what, I wouldn't need the truth. Gunther pursed his lips. Before the war, you mean? How is she? Now? I don't know. I haven't talked to her for a bit. Do you run hot and cold with her? I never got that sense. I always felt... Gunther paused, his brow furrowing. I never used to, said Tom gloomily, not on the outside. In my heart, perhaps. Well, of course in my heart. Now, Reginald is the steady ship of her favor. Gunther's head jerked up. Reginald! Oh, she was hungry for grandchildren, and... Tom shook his head. No, of course that's not it. I mean... How do you think she lives with... with that man? Your father? Tom laughed mirthlessly. All right. Well, I don't... like to think of that. He's such a... What? What is he? A usurper? Gunther threw Tom a glance that was almost fierce. Why? What a word. 
I don't know, scowled Tom. It just struck me. A pause hung between the two men. Tom could see that Gunther was struggling about whether to ask more about what Tom knew. I so much want for him to tell me himself. These hints are so unfair. My mother is fine, said Tom finally, turning away deliberately. But I asked her to do something she doesn't want to, so things are cool between us. Do you want to tell me? Oh, don't you ever just ask, snapped Tom, for the hell of it. Gunther blinked, but had the good grace not to look surprised. So tell me. I asked her to turn against Quentin. Then Gunther did look surprised. He threw his head back and laughed. It was a long, deep and rich sound. And how did that go? he asked, and it was the first time that Tom felt Gunther was speaking to him as an equal. No, wait, <laughs> let me guess. Her eyes grew defiant, not of him, but you. She sat very still, said nothing. How do you know? Tom asked gently. You get to know some people over the years. Some people you know right away. It's like the future you're going to spend with them comes back and plucks your heart the moment you meet them. Did you love my mother? Gunther nodded slowly. Yes. Yes, of course. Did... Tom's next question was interrupted by a sharp knock at the front door. Gunther rose, walked over, and opened it. Churchill came in, shaking an umbrella, his overcoat stained with rain. "'Now the south of France I can understand,' cried Churchill, dropping his umbrella and taking off his coat. "'But why we defend this wretched isle is sometimes beyond me. How are you, Gunther?' "'Very well.' "'Tom!' said Churchill, overjoyed. Tom jumped up from the sofa. Churchill gripped his hands in both hands. "'What a splendid job you did for us in Vienna. First rate. Will be of great value to future historians. Nice personal touches. Vivid. It must be nice to be home.' Do you know that there were over 100,000 arrests in the first week of Nazi rule there? And as for the Jews, good God, it's a rape and pillage, pure and simple. Tom nodded rapidly. The man was infectious. Something for the chill, Gunther, if you please, said Churchill, flopping into an armchair. He had, Tom noticed, a way of ordering people which was entirely inoffensive. Churchill fingered the rather lurid fabric, then winked at Tom. He has German efficiency, but German taste as well. "'Now,' he said, half-turning in his chair, "'did you tell young Mr. Spencer about Czechoslovakia?' "'We got sidetracked,' said Gunther, "'returning with three drinks poised between delicate fingers. "'He handed them out, then sat down. "'Churchill took a deep draught. "'I'm going to miss quality port when war comes,' he said. "'I give it up, you know, with solidarity. "'Not cigars. Have to think. But port. "'Now, to Czechoslovakia. "'This is what is going to happen.' Herr Hitler's methods are clear. Ferment local disorder, fund terrorism, and then present demands. Those demands cannot be met, for if they are, he raises them, and then invades. It's quite brilliant. Because the major question for the British and French in regards to Czechoslovakia is, if Herr Hitler invades because Czechoslovakia does not accede to his demands, is that the same as unilateral aggression? Oh, that's just awful. I'm trying to find a succinct way of putting it. Failing that, at least pithy. How about uh, if Germany demands something from Czechoslovakia, and Czechoslovakia refuses, and then Germany invades? Is that the fault of Czechoslovakia? Only slightly better. That is the real question. The relevant question is, can Chamberlain find a way to blame Czechoslovakia for being invaded? That is crucial. 
actually more crucial for France than Chamberlain. France has a treaty, you know, Tom, with Czechoslovakia, and has to come to her aid if she's attacked. And we, of course, have a treaty with France, and will have to come to her aid if she rides off in aid of Czechoslovakia. That is how it's going to happen. That's how we hope it shall happen. I can't imagine a worse scenario, but we shall not talk of that. Another drink, Tom? Asked Gunther, who could nurse a drink until doomsday. No, thank you. Churchill continued. The Sudeten land is in Hitler's thoughts. He wants it. He wants power, and the German-speaking people beyond the borders of the Reich are his means to achieve it. There are three million Germans in Czechoslovakia, in the West, where all the defences lie. They are constantly complaining about being mistreated, which is utter rot, of course. They are the best-treated minority in the world. Would President Benes be so mad as to terrorize a German population within reach of Hitler? Churchill laughed. What fools could imagine that? Ah, of course, all the fools in the press. And Hitler hates Czechoslovakia as a creation of Versailles, so he will try to take the western half on the pretext of absorbing the Sudetenland Germans, and then he will take the eastern half, because there will be no means left to defend it. Churchill thumped his glass down, his small eyes grew devilish. But we mean to thwart him, don't we? We can do nothing for Czechoslovakia. We have no real army. Our aircraft cannot reach it. However, with France, we can attack Germany in the west, while a million Czech soldiers keep her forces pinned down in the south and east, and Russian troops pour into Germany through Poland and Romania. No real army, said Gunther. But we have an air force. We can support the French in the air. We can use the navy to strangle the ore supply from Sweden. We can keep the honor of our island. And, said Tom, then faltered, yes. And if we don't attack Germany over Czechoslovakia? Ah. Churchill settled back in his chair. Then the night of the world will be far, far longer, and I may not live to see the dawn. But you shall help us see that this does not happen. You shall be our eyes and ears on the ground, and if some need arises for a back channel of communication, then you will be there for us. Tom pursed his lips. He glanced at Gunther. But perhaps, said Churchill, leaning forward in his chair, that is what was occupying yourself and Gunther, as I entered. Some reservation you have. You must share it with me, Tom. I feel... hopeless, said Tom. He opened his mouth to say more, but realized that everything he could add would be superfluous. Churchill nodded. I felt that way. I am a sound sleeper. My head hits the pillow. His voice lowered. But the night after I learned that Eden had resigned, over Chamberlain's courting of Signor Mussolini, that night I did not sleep. I lay awake all night, and I felt in my heart and bones that we were going to come to a most grievous pass, and that the lessons we would be forced to learn might be more harsh than we could survive. And I felt all my spirits lower, such as I have never felt before. And then... Churchill shrugged, sipping his drink. Well, the morning is the morning. It's a tautology, but it always is. In the morning I felt that I still had my part to play, and that I am a man who loves to solve problems and take action, and that the coming years will afford measureless opportunities for me to match my wits against the best of the worst that the world can offer, and that that may be the reason I am here, 
and I have never thought that Providence loads us down with more than we can carry. Churchill smiled, and that has been enough. Tom nodded slowly. His lips were pursed, and he found it hard to breathe. Oh, come now, man, said Churchill, handing him a handkerchief. You mustn't be shy of tears. Tom nodded and sniffed and blew his nose. So, he said after a minute, you are not thinking of peace any more. No, said Churchill, settling back. Until 1933, we could have prevented German rearmament without the loss of a single life. Now, there will be blood. Herr Hitler will not be deterred by it. If he is a fish, it is his ocean. So, what do you hope for? Tom was about to add, personally or politically, but realized that, for Churchill, they were unlikely to be distinct categories. Do you want to prevent war? I have always wanted to prevent war. And if war comes, I wish to prevent as much suffering as possible. The only way to do that is to inflict as much suffering as possible, as quickly as possible, on your enemy. Being good is hard, Tom. You must be strong, harsh. Otherwise, weapons only exist in the hands of those who will use them unjustly. Good, undefended is not goodness, just cowardice. Hmm, said Tom, looking down. Will you go back to Czechoslovakia? asked Churchill after a moment. You must tell me your plan first. We shall go to war, replied Churchill evenly. And the current government will fall, and then I, or someone like me, shall lead. And then we will win, and be gentle with our enemies, and the world shall be free, for a time at least. Tom paused, took a deep breath, then nodded once more. Chapter 78 They never found her body. They asked, wondered, begged, cajoled, tried to bribe in an awkward and amateurish manner. The various officials they talked to seemed to take some pleasure in their need, their desperation, and sent them in some large, almost preordained circles, back and forth, round and round. They filled out forms, waited endlessly, and chased officials down alleys when they realized the men they were waiting to meet often left through the back door. After two weeks of this, Klaus sensibly pointed out that with each passing day and the growing heat of spring, the benefit of finding her body was diminishing rapidly. Martin nodded grimly. His face, never very animated, had settled into a wooden mask. He reminded Klaus of the photos of Hitler sometimes, although there was something more just, slightly less primitive about his father's set features. More like a vigilante than a criminal. Same basic breed, but one step up. More than one, perhaps. They spoke little during their navigation of the bureaucratic mazes. They had a purpose. They had to find her. They never had a chance to say goodbye. It had never even crossed their minds. Renata was never sick. She was not engaged in anything hazardous. A country parson's wife. A rock. It was on the way back from the last day they had spent at the police station, the mayor's office, the morgue, 
the hospital, the prison, that they were walking back to the farmhouse. Count Orsky had taken his car back since Klaus was no longer coming to work. It was early May. Birds darted and squeaked. Buds were opening like slow pink eyes. The earth was enslaved, but twenty feet above the ground the air was as free as anywhere else in the world. Martin strode along with his customary rapid gait. Klaus hurried along slightly, half a head shorter than his father. He felt irritation at this old, old problem. Even when he had been six, his father had walked as fast, and Renata, half buried under her offspring, had constantly been forced to ask her husband to slow down. Yet her voice never became irritable, thought Klaus. He glanced over at his father and felt a wave of hatred. Dead, dry oak of a man! The image of his mother expiring under the black shade of Martin's selfish indifference kept recurring to him. The very seas dry up, beating against such endless cliffs. Martin looked over at his son and saw the hatred in his eyes. When I woke up that night, said Martin slowly, pausing almost between each word, I thought that your new friends were part of God's plan. I had the answer. Where did that dream come from? I don't know, father, said Klaus tightly. The devil, said Martin, the devil sent them. Mother's death doesn't— She was murdered, shouted Martin, stopping and turning to Klaus. He lifted his fist. Murdered! Klaus's mouth twisted in scorn. Your answer to everything in the world. He imitated his father in an exaggerated fashion, brandishing his fist. Who made you God's perfect sledgehammer, father? Who? What happened to your respect? You have new friends who you think will protect you, but they will not protect you, my son, not from the final reckoning. Klaus laughed harshly. <laughs> what, what final reckoning? Do you think there is some reckoning worse than this? She is with God, said Martin piously. She is in a ditch, screamed Klaus. Martin slapped him. Her soul is not in heaven. Insects are eating her eyes, cried Klaus, backing away. He pointed a forefinger. You did nothing to stop them. You joined them. Klaus's face broke into many shards. I... They were going to shoot me. What did they do to you? Took notes at a conference? You say nothing at church. Not one word about resistance. Martin's jaw dropped. You, you, you don't believe them then? I believed that they were going to shoot me. And I wanted to live. I don't know why. Not now. Not for this. If I knew I was going to live to see this. Oh, my God. Klaus sagged to his knees. I sh should have kissed that fucking bullet. And then mother does. She just does that. Why? Why was she so unhappy that she took an axe? Martin tried to rally his voice. She, she died for her faith. 
She died for lack of love, gasped Klaus. She was loved. You all loved her. I, I loved her. You loved her through God, not God through her. She was just a saved soul. What are you talking about? And what in your life kept these animals at bay? Your world spirit? What moral commandments did your God of history impose? None! And you blame me for not acting afterwards as I wrestled with my conscience. When did you act before when you were free? Shut up! Screamed Klaus, his hands clutching at his face. You traveled. You were free. You read half a library. You could have gone anywhere, done anything. But you were here with them. Martin's voice dropped to a whisper. You could have left, even after there are no travel restrictions. And Mother was taken because of you. Lies! 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 Why was she taken? Hanging some crucifixes in a country hospital, because the family of a Nazi must be perfectly pure. By joining them, you killed her. Klaus sobbed down in the dust of the rutted road. He whispered something into his hands. Enraged, Martin strode forward and tore them from his son's face. What? What? Klaus raised agonized eyes to his father's face outlined against the blue sky. The birds were silent. Nature was still. Klaus's face was grimy, streaked with tears. Why? Did you not teach me to be good? He whispered. Martin knelt down and gripped his son to his chest. We'll fight them, son, he murmured, stroking his son's hair. For her. For her. So we can all rest in peace. Chapter 79 all summer long, the foreign office was in a frenzy over Czechoslovakia. German troops were slowly moving eastwards. Their training maneuvers drifted 20 miles a week. One week after the German Anschluss in Austria, the Russians had moved to give guarantees to Czechoslovakia if Czechoslovakia was attacked by Germany and France attacked Germany, then Russia would attack Germany as well. For Cuthbert, it was a nightmare. He kept Reginald close to him during those months, constantly ranting about that bastard state, Czechoslovakia. It's a mongrel land stitched together by the framers of Versailles. Damn their unthinking eyes. Every generation, it seems, must spill blood for the stupidities of the previous generation. All these treaties are designed to keep Europe in exactly the same configuration as 1919. But Europe is constantly changing shape. It cannot stay the same forever. The Germans want the Sudetenland. The Sudetenland wants to rejoin with Germany. It can all be achieved bloodlessly. Why, then, are we going to the brink of war to oppose a peaceful reunion which no one objects to? His former boredom had largely abandoned his personality, as rats will leave a sinking ship. 
so slow-moving fish will ooze out of a rising wreck. Reginald had to constantly remind Cuthbert that he must not allow himself to get so agitated. It was no use. It's like 1914 all over again, said Cuthbert one morning, munching on a croissant. I was here then, you know, just where you are now. And we felt all these treaties closing in on us like icebergs crushing a ship. What kind of insanity turns the assassination of a Serbian archduke into a world war? Treaties! That's what. Everything is conditional. I vowed to marry my wife, but she went mental, so I divorced her. The vow was, I marry you as you are now, and will commit to you as long as there are only reasonable changes. When you think I am trying to kill you and keep running off with the children to hide in caves, why then I am allowed to rethink my treaty. Reginald was becoming quite comfortable opposing Cuthbert. Look, Cuthbert, the Czechs have a point. If they lose the Sudetenland, they lose all their defenses. If Hitler decides to take the eastern rump, they will have no way of stopping him. And they have some reason to put faith in France's commitment to fight for her if she is attacked, and our commitment to follow France into battle. Can you imagine, murmured Cuthbert, how terrifying that would be. Imagine this. Benes, the Czech fool, has been seizing land along the border to build fortifications, land almost exclusively owned by Germans. He's been paying them for their land. It's the principal, Reg. People always go to war over principles. They're even worse than treaties. All treaties should be thrown in a pile and burned. Everyone claiming principles should be thrown on top. And Benes has also been refusing to educate German children in their own language, and he's hedging about using German as an official language. But really, who would? They are a minority. We don't do that with the Welsh. Or Gaelic, yes. But we don't have a madman with thirty divisions drifting towards us. This is what terrifies me, Reginald. I haven't slept properly in a month. Hitler says, do something to make the Sudetenland Germans feel special. Not much. Give them a parade. And Benes refuses out of some damn principle. And then Hitler invades. Not right away, but it will happen. France goes in. Russia goes in. We go in. America gets dragged in. The Second World War. The skies black with bombers, children in flames. The end of everything. Cuthbert slammed his hands together violently. Principles and treaties, like lemmings, right off a cliff. It doesn't have to be quite like that. Hitler might be contained by resolute resistance. Oh, yes. Brinksmanship with a madman is an excellent plan. The insane... Don't tend to give way. Cuthbert tapped his ring finger. Trust me, I know. Their voices won't let them. No, 
We have to hope that giving Hitler what he wants will lower the tension in Europe. A lion feasts, it sleeps. Would you let your little girls go up in flames to save Bennis and his stupid patchwork of a country? I say, cried Reginald. Well, don't fool yourself, said Cuthbert, chewing noisily at the last cud of croissant. That's what it will come to. In hindsight, what happened in August of 1938 wasn't too surprising. One morning, Reginald came in at his usual time, 7 a.m. Oh, it was a wonderful time of the day. He went to bed at 9.30, an hour or so after the children, after doing the paperwork he had brought home. Sometimes Reginald would go in and say good night to his wife, but by now she was such a solid lump of resentment that he found it most unsettling. She still nitpicked, but with much less energy than before. He had a wonderful excuse. He would just travel or work late, dropping hints that his job was insecure. Mm, if he lost his job, they would have to rely fully on her parents for income, which was horrifying to her because their money came at the price of endless intervention. So if she nitpicked or nagged or whined or scolded, then Reginald would just vanish. It was not punishment per se, but rather a kind of aversion therapy. The basic male equation. Bitch equals distance. Of course, for Wendy, the reverse was true, and this is where they were caught. Distance equals bitch equals distance equals bitch. She had gotten to the point where she no longer wanted to change her husband, but just oppose him blindly, persistently. They no longer had sex, or at least very rarely when hormones briefly overcame hostility, but he had not, to her knowledge, had an affair. Oh, but if he did. Reginald could be a fairly good father at times. He played with his children. He could be quite physically affectionate, which surprised Wendy because he came from such a chilly family. Oh, except Tom, always except Tom. But when Jocelyn or Lillian took a plunge and he was around, he would scoop them up and kiss them better. This always made Wendy feel belittled, humiliated, and strangely claustrophobic. She would take to the bathroom whenever Reginald held his daughters, because some sort of garish spotlight would be turned on in her dank and twisted soul, showing her tunnels and terrors beyond her ability to stomach. He can love, he can love, just not me, just not me, she would think over and over, sitting on the toilet, her head between her legs. Then there might be a knock, and Reginald would laugh and say, Do you think that Mummy has fallen in? And the girls would giggle, and Wendy would feel sick to her very bowels. So Reginald liked getting up early and getting out of the house before everyone else rose. And then, in August 1938, he got into the office, and it was empty. This was not too unusual. Hart did not start early. He was always five minutes late, which aggravated Reginald no end, but he had no intention of nagging a grown man. Cuthbert rarely rolled in before ten or eleven. 
Reginald had a mass of paperwork to review. All the details of correspondence coming in from the European embassies, several trade pacts which had been sitting with him for over a month, some translated Italian documents. But they could all wait. He made some tea, then picked up his copy of the Times and settled back into his comfortable chair. Ah, he thought, scanning the front page. If only Wendy knew. There were several basic lies which could utterly unravel the remaining civility in his marriage, but Reginald was confident that Wendy would never discover them. I say, I must come in early, dear, otherwise I should never be able to come home. If she could see me now, sipping tea in perfect silence, reading my newspaper. Because Lord knows there's no sight a restless woman hates more than a reposing husband. Also, there were his evenings. I have to meet foreign diplomats. This was true, but the professional content of those meetings existed only by implication. They would meet at the club, and sometimes the talk would go over politics, but mostly it was gossip. That is the great secret of the diplomatic profession. Nine-tenths of it is gossip. So you have to love gossip. You have to love ripping down the screens between public piety and private blasphemy, decoding two-faced statements, laughing at naive trust. Benes was a popular target. Since 1933, Czechoslovakia was the only democracy left in Eastern and Central Europe. Benes had been a central figure in its government for 20 years and had managed to retain the integrity of his land despite its myriad disparate minorities. He had embarked on a strong program of defense building since Germany occupied the Rhineland in 1936. Privately, he had also largely discounted the French as viable allies due to their failure to act against Hitler. The Anschluss in Austria had changed everything. Czechoslovakia was now surrounded by German power on three sides. Hitler was funding the Sudetenland Nazi Party. Civil revolts had been growing over the summer. The pattern was clear. Hitler was slavering over the prospect of dismembering Czechoslovakia. Hitler was strong. But Czechoslovakia was not a lost cause. It had one and a half million men under arms. Its defensive structures rivaled those of the Maginot Line. Its 34 divisions were an equal match for the new, poorly trained German army. It possessed the most advanced arms manufacturing plants in Eastern Europe, the famed Skoda Works. Its population, except for many of the Germans, was strongly anti-Nazi. However, Benes had his weaknesses. He was a pacifist and was haunted by the national memory of the Czech disaster of the White Mountain of 1630, which had subjected them to 300 years of German rule. He claimed to rely on British and French guarantees, although there was real doubt as to their value. He neglected to build a stronger relationship with Russia. And in the final question, it was unclear whether he was prepared to use his military and face the awful civilian death toll which would result from aerial bombardment. However, in May of 1938, Benes had shown some mettle. 
The gossip about Bennis had changed for a time in diplomatic circles. He was no longer a coward. Now he was a warmonger. In May, German troops had been massing on the borders. The leader of the German Sudetenland Nazis had been pressing hard for secession to Germany, as well as fomenting rioting and street fighting. Benes had mobilized his army. Alarmed, Hitler had backed down immediately. The lesson was not lost on the Western democracies. However, the lesson was not, mobilize and Hitler withdraws. The lesson instead was, for God's sake, don't let Benes mobilize again. Reginald turned to the pages, slowly drifting to the international section. His tea was cooling. He drank it faster, scowling, because he had been unable to find the sugar. One of the other basic lies of his marriage was that his job was in danger. It was almost impossible to be fired from the civil service. Even now, when the F.O. was under such a spotlight, being fired was almost inconceivable. If he made a terrible mistake and plunged the world into war, Reginald might be reassigned, moved out of the spotlight. But he put up with stagnation and politics in exchange for job security. Oh, if Wendy knew that, everything would change. The weight of her demands would increase exponentially. No, he had to keep her off her feet, unbalanced. God knows she was difficult enough, even when diffident, if she ever got the upper hand. The telephone rang, but Reginald did not jump. He only jumped at home. Yes. Lord Halifax here, said a crisp, tinny voice. Reginald leapt to his feet. Yes, sir. Mr. Rathbone was carried off last night. Heart attack. I'm coming in. Be there. There was a click. Reginald's hand lowered the receiver slowly. With a slight shudder, he realized how exposed and comical he must look, eyes wide, mouth gaping. He sat down shakily. A most unexpected door had suddenly opened, and Lord Halifax was coming. Promotion, more travel, more time away from home. My God, he wasn't even thirty yet, almost, but he could be an MP by the time he was thirty-five, maybe thirty-four. A boy, genius, a wunderkind, someone to go down in the annals, <gasps> being toasted by the hands of hundreds of glittering, bespectacled faces, giving advice. <gasps> when he paused for thought, people stay silent. Any brash fool who tried to talk over him would be silenced by a hissing sea of shushes. Glory was coming. Glory and triumph over, <gasps> over Wendy. Wendy and Tom. Oh, Tom. Reginald closed his eyes sensuously. Lost in dreams, he panicked when the door to his office opened and Lord Halifax came in. He leaned forward too quickly. His chair on wheels skidded backwards and he had to clutch at his desk like a toboggan. Lord Halifax, Reginald cried, wrestling to a standing position. He reached out his hand, then remembered that his desk was too deep to shake hands over. "'Mr. Spencer,' said Lord Halifax, staring at the hand, then shaking his head slightly. Reginald sat down again, scanning the Lord for contempt. He saw 
A little, he thought, and his heart sank. Cuthbert spoke well of you, said Lord Halifax, taking off his hat and smoothing the remaining side fringes of his white hair. So I am considering you for a tricky job. We are sending Ransomen over to Czechoslovakia to meet with Benes and this Heinlein fellow to see what we can work out. Ransomen doesn't speak German. Cuthbert was to go with him. I'm thinking of you, not just as a translator. Thank you, sir, said Reginald with feeling. <gasps> Foreign hotels returning with gifts for his daughter's easy love. "'I know that you're not a man to whom appeasement is a dirty word,' said Lord Halifax. "'But I need for you to tell me how you would handle these negotiations.' "'Well, I would—' Reginald paused, cursing himself madly for a false start, for starting without thinking first. "'I, I think that the key thing is to avoid violence. Once the swords are drawn, it's all over. Power passes from us to the chiefs of staff. Power for good—' So, if Benes has to lose the Sudetenland to Germany, so be it. It's going to happen sooner or later. And France's treaty? Deladier won't be able to be silent on that. Reginald smiled. This part he was sure of. Of course, they'll bray loud and long about their obligations to Czechoslovakia, but I don't think they will object to us finding reasons for them to extract themselves from such a foolish commitment. And how will you do that? Simple. The onus is on Benes to avoid war. He has the power to give Hitler what he wants. If he doesn't, whatever happens is the result of his choice. Lord Halifax pursed his lips, then nodded decisively. Substantially correct, but you'll have to fluff it up. Delegate everything you've got. You leave in two days. Chapter 80 Tom loved Czechoslovakia. His love for it came from his soul, from some deep Catherine-induced part of him. Most of the Europeans he had met were, with some notable exceptions, blind, arrogant, vain. They did not believe that they could lose their freedoms. They did not think that the Nazis were that bad. They thought that totalitarianism was a passing phase— they thought that everything was relative. They thought that the Western democracies would always save them if things got too bad. They did not lift a finger to save others. They screamed in self-pity as they were dragged to their deaths. But the Czechs were nothing like that. They had been ruled by the Germans for three hundred years— they had no illusions about their Aryan neighbors. For the past twenty years they had lived next to the greatest shadow in Europe. They had listened as all of Eastern Europe had cried out its hatred of Czechoslovakia, demanding its destruction. They knew that many of the Sudetenland Germans wanted Hitler to come. They knew that one in three Czech citizens were non-Czechs, and that hysterical nationalism appeared to be an uncontainable virus. They knew that France and England were largely committed to appeasement. They knew that their civilian casualties would be ghastly. They knew all this, but they held their heads high and vowed never to surrender to Germany. 
Tom noticed a tragic disconnection between the people and their leaders, particularly around the issue of the historical German occupation. For President Benes, the possibility of a return to German rule was better than resistance. For the people, resistance was better than German rule. Given that it was the people who would bear the brunt of the bombing, Tom found the attitude of Benes hard to understand. The only fear that the Czech citizens had was of being sold out by the Western democracies or their own leaders. They demanded to be given the chance to fight. Picketers protested in the streets, holding up a picture of a pile of revolvers with the caption underneath, We paid for them! Let us have them! There was great excitement through all sections of society. Czechoslovakia had a strong religious base, and the idea of heaven was not far from the minds of the citizens. To die resisting evil was no great loss. To live in acquiescence to it was worse. As one man put it, what would you rather have? One moment of pain followed by an eternity of bliss? Or a long, ghastly life followed by an eternity of torment? After spending a few weeks in Prague, Tom traveled out to the Sudetenland. He found the Germans irritating because they were only committed to reunification because the most deranged elements within them were committed to it, and Germans have never had much luck saying no to insistent insanity. And God forbid that they ever go against the group. They had no real minds of their own and were gratingly evasive when questioned closely. Doubtless there was some fear of the future. Who would want to be on record for being anti-Nazi when Hitler rolled into town? But they spouted pro-unification opinions even when drunk, or when Tom refrained from identifying himself as a reporter. Not that any of his pieces were being published, but still. They were also experts at manufacturing enemies. They really thought that they were being oppressed by the Czechs and would be liberated by the Germans. Tom avoided the Nazis, but questioned the locals closely. One old man complained about schooling. The damn Czechs have stopped funding German-only schools. They've also banned private education, so now we have to send our children to be instructed in their bastard tongue. On closer examination, he confessed to being a bachelor and childless. A fat woman said, They aren't even publishing their edicts in German anymore. They translate nothing. They want us to stop being German. Tom asked her which edicts she had been unable to read. Her face grew hard and hostile, and she turned and strode off. My God, thought Tom, watching her fat ankles stomp away, but German women are ugly. The Sudetenland Nazi party was naturally stoking all the fires of petty resentment. They demonized the Czech government, poured fanatical scorn on the idea of democracy, and spoke of the joys of being reunited with the fatherland. Tom questioned the Germans about the idea of freedom, but didn't get very far. It just didn't register with them. They spoke with choking rage against Czech oppressions, but when Tom argued that the Reich would strip them of all civil liberties, they shut their mouths and just glared at him. Oh, Tom wanted to thump them. He didn't mind others disagreeing with him, but when people argue, 
and then just clam up when faced with a contradiction. It enraged him. Don't pretend to argue, he wanted to shout, but knew it would do no good. The annoying thing about the Sudetenland Germans was that Tom and many Czechs he talked with would be more than happy to get rid of them. They were difficult, unstable, resentful, and quite a few were open Nazis. They presented significant difficulties to the management of Czechoslovakia. Accede to them or leave them be, and their demands increased either way. Oppressed them, and they cried out for Hitler. One professor he spoke to had a simple solution which Tom described in a long letter to Churchill. This is what we do, said the man peering through a pair of rather German-looking pince-nez. We ban the Nazi party. Hitler can't fume about that. He's banned all non-Nazi parties. We throw the Nazi leaders in jail, and then we mobilize. Hitler won't be able to act right away because he's afraid of our defenses and army. And later the issue will be dead. When you perceive an injustice, you have to act right away, or not at all. But, said Tom, the British and French would raise a fuss. The professor smiled. Well, you don't make it a specifically anti-Nazi crackdown. Just act resolutely against any groups creating civil disorder. Round them all up. No moral government can accept a revolution from within. The British and French certainly don't, either domestically or within the empire. Look at Amritsar. It's an internal matter which has nothing to do with Hitler and should be presented as such. If Hitler invades because of a Czech crackdown on internal dissidents, then France will be unable to wriggle out of her commitments, and so Russia and England will come in, and it will be all over in under six months. The man sighed, rubbing the bridge of his nose. The only alternative is to let the Berlin-controlled Sudetenland Nazis keep escalating their demands, which will result in Czechoslovakia looking like the aggressor. Then we will be lost. And it looks as if it will go this way, said the professor, his eyes suddenly flashing. And I cannot tell you how far it offends me to have such weak men negotiating on my behalf. For if they come, I shall not be suffered to live, yet they want to deal with me as if I were a species of livestock. That night, Tom thought about the man's statement for a long time. The state was murdering hundreds of thousands in Germany and Austria. The Jews in Vienna were being rounded up, robbed, beaten, raped, and slaughtered. The anti-Semitism, which had taken years to inculcate in Germany, had sprung up in Austria without prompting. Of course, Viennese Jews were very prominent and very rich, and Nazism was as much about plunder as it was about Lebensraum. But still, no one in England or France was overly concerned with the civilian population in the lands overrun by Nazism. But what the professor had said really struck home. Tom remembered an old idea from the classical liberalism of the 19th century. A citizen faces more danger from his own government than from a foreign oppressor, because he can always take up arms against an invader, but his own government has a monopoly on force and keeps him legally disarmed. The application of this idea to the rise of Nazism was fascinating. The leaders of Austria and Czechoslovakia claim that they are moved to appeasement over the horror of the destruction of their domestic populations. But those populations are being destroyed anyway through murder, imprisonment, and conscription. But at least in war, they can hide and arm and fight back. 
It reminded Tom of something Churchill had once said in relation to the Spanish Civil War. Naturally, I was not in favor of the communists. How could I be, when if I had been a Spaniard, they would have murdered me and my family and friends? This ability to see the tangible results of political decisions, or more accurately to see the inevitable result of certain premises, was one of Churchill's most powerful gifts. Tom thought of this in terms of Klaus one night when he drove out to the defenses ringing the Sudetenland. It was a warm night, wispy clouds hung between high stars. From a hilltop he could see over the walled bunkers, tank traps and machine gun nests into Germany, to where Klaus struggled, or didn't struggle. And Tom thought of all Klaus's undergraduate Kantian nonsense, all the vague, claustrophobic ideas which so grated against Tom's empirical British brain, where all that nonsense inevitably led. And of course, he thought suddenly, we may yet meet in battle. Tom frowned and sat down on a patch of bare rock. It took him a few moments to find a place and angle to sit without anything digging into his rear. They were both flyers. It was not inconceivable. But most unlikely, he thought. We are both instructors, and they would never risk us. And even if they did with a thousand flyers on each side, what would be the odds? Tom glanced down and noticed that his hands were clenched. Another thought struck him. And though we were friends once, and he first taught me the joy of flying, I should still shoot him down without hesitation. He smiled then in the dark. Ah, the old Anglo-Saxon instincts. There's a reason we own a quarter of the globe. Tom returned to Prague the next day. He arrived the evening and found the whole city in an uproar. It was September 12th, 1938. Tom jumped out of his car at the first newsstand he saw and bought a paper. That day, Hitler had made a speech about Czechoslovakia which was printed on the first page. Tom scanned it rapidly. A great part of our people delivered up to shameless ill-treatment without any apparent means of self-defense. The misery of the Sudeten Germans is indescribable. It is sought to annihilate them. As human beings, they are oppressed and scandalously treated in an intolerable fashion. Where three and a half million members of a people which numbers 80 million may not sing a song they like because it does not please the Czechs, or when they are terrorized and mistreated because they use a form of greeting which the Czechs dislike, when they are hunted and harried like wild fowl for every expression of their national sentiment, I can only say that if these tortured creatures can of themselves find no justice, they will get it from us. It was a short-sighted arrangement which the statesmen of Versailles devised for themselves when they called into being that monstrous formation, Czechoslovakia. The rest of it was the usual paranoid Nazi rubbish. Tom looked up. Candles lined the windowsills of the little flats over the shops all the way down the street. 
This was new. He stopped a man running past. What are these candles for? The man stopped, smiling humorlessly. They are all over the city, he said. Everyone is lighting candles. And it is said that when these candles are burnt down, the state of Czechoslovakia will be no more. <laughs>